different calendars and they tell different stories. Our national calendar, it tells a story, a very particular story. If you were on the wrong side of several wars, you would not appreciate the story that our calendar tells. When Janelle and I lived in England, we tried to convince all of our neighbors to celebrate the 4th of July with us. But they didn't appreciate the story that that told. When you're in school or your kids are in school, you tend to be tuned in to the academic calendar. If you're a farmer, there's a rhythm to your year and it's based on the seasons of planting and harvesting. Now, it's a... It's a very serious mistake to think that these stories are innocent. They are not innocent. They are not innocent stories and they are not weak stories. They are very powerful in our lives. You see, your behavior most of the time is driven by who you are. Not by what you're thinking. Most of our behavior comes out of us without us reflecting, well, what should I do in this particular situation? Most of our behavior is drawn out of us and it, and it comes out of who we are, the kind of people we've become. It comes out of our character and our character is profoundly shaped by the stories that we embrace. It's the stories in our lives That shape the way we feel about the world. It's the stories in our lives that train our emotions and they prime our hearts. They train us to see things the way that we see them. In other words, behind our behavior is typically not our thoughts. Not a train of deductive reasoning. Behind our behavior is our character. A character that is largely shaped by the stories we embrace. It's not surprising then that when God first gathered a people to himself, (coughs) one of the first thing he did was cancel their calendar and give them a new one. He took over their calendar. You can read about this in Exodus 12. After God delivers the people of Israel from Egypt, he immediately says, Okay, from now on, your year starts on this date. And you have to have these festivals spread out through the year. He he took over the calendar of the people. And he insisted that they tell a story through their calendar. And the story was told by the just the way our calendars are told, by feasts. By rituals. And these feasts and these rituals told the story of how God saved his people. How God in his power and his wisdom. He used days and weeks and months and years. To indoctrinate the Jewish people in the true story. Now when Jesus came along. He did not erase this calendar. He transformed it. In his birth and his life, in his ministry, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. And then finally in the pouring out of his spirit on his people. Jesus fulfilled the Jewish calendar and transformed it. 
And then what happened? Well, the Christians who started this whole thing, the first Christians, were primarily Jews. And for 1,500 years, they had learned how God made us to be shaped by stories. And not just stories in general, but the most rudimentary, the most fundamental stories, and that these get embodied in our calendars. And so what did those first Christians do? They immediately took the Jewish calendar and they allowed it to be transformed to tell the story of Jesus. They immediately developed a a yearly calendar that told the story of how Jesus, who had been promised for so long, became one of us, paid the penalty for our sins, overcame the powers of evil and death, all so that he could rescue the whole cosmos from the clutches of darkness. So we've got Advent. That's the beginning of the Christian year, four weeks and some change. It's when we prepare for the birth of Christ. The birth of Christ is the Christmas season. Last 12 days. Because one day it's hardly enough to celebrate something as impossible as what happened at Christmas. And then we have epiphany. It's, an, it's a fancy word. It literally means manifestation. It's the time of the year where we celebrate the manifestation of Jesus As the glory of God. And not just for some, but for the whole world. And so Epiphany is rooted when the Magi show up and they recognize Jesus as the true king. Then we have the season which begins today. The season of Lent. It's the 40 days leading up to Easter. Today, Ash Wednesday is the beginning of it. And it culminates in Holy Week. Now if... You're very good with math and you've already added it up. It's actually more than 40 days because we don't count Sundays. Because no Sundays count for this. They always count for resurrection days. Now this season of Lent culminating in the week of Holy Week. This is when we remember the final days of Jesus' life. And it's long because the passion part of the Gospels is the biggest chunk of the Gospels. And then we get to the center of the Christian year, the center of our existence, Easter, the hinge around which the entire universe pivots. And finally, we have Pentecost, the 50 days after Easter, where we celebrate Christ's ascension into heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Lent begins today. And it's this long period of slow And sustained preparation for Easter. And it's filled with rituals. It's filled with symbol. It's filled with thick and powerful customs. First of all, it's 40 days. Why 40? Because in the Bible we see 40 popping up all over the place. For 40 days God poured out his judgment on the earth during Noah's time in a flood. The people of Israel wandered in the wilderness in their disobedience for 40 years. The people of Nineveh, if you read the the scripture reading for this morning from Jonah, the people of Nineveh, they had 40 days of repentance once they heard God's judgment pronounced against them. 
And then, of course, Jesus. Picking up on all of these themes, follows the pattern, goes into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and fighting with Satan. Now, all of these 40 events in Scripture connect us to the major themes of Lent. Suffering, testing, repentance, spiritual warfare. So that's one way in which Lent shapes our calendar in a way that tells a very important part of the Christian story. But there's more. There's the ritual we're about to go through of marking ashes on foreheads. Why? Why ashes? Why is this? Is it some ritual cooked up by the church to just be cute or to try to, you know, fake some sort of gravitas? No. No, that's not it at all. It goes back to the fact that there are examples throughout Scripture of people using ashes as a visible and tangible sign of being broken over their sin, over sin that has been perpetrated against them, over their own brokenness, over the brokenness of the world. Tamar, after her brother raped her, Marks herself with ashes. Mordecai, in his deep grief over the impending doom of the Jewish nation, marks himself with ashes. Job, when he's distraught and far from God and can't figure out what's going on in his life, ashes are a critical part of his physical expression of that. And the king of Nineveh himself, we read in our scripture readings this morning, Marking himself and his people with ashes. But the presence of ashes is not only about that. It also takes us right to the heart of the sacrificial system. Because you cannot have sacrifices without ashes. This was a a regular, powerful part of how God taught his people to understand themselves and him. For 1,500 years. Now you put all of this together. And what are the ashes? These ashes are symbols. That bring us face to face. With the reality of our mortality. With the brokenness of our world. With our own sin. With our own deaths that we deserve. And then... There's the fasting that is so much a part of Lent. And again, this is deeply rooted in Scripture. You heard it in our Gospel reading before that Jesus devoted significant space in His most famous sermon, not to trying to convince us to fast, but He starts out with the assumption, when you fast. And all through Scripture, we encounter fasting. Why? Many reasons, but let me give you one very pregnant sentence. Because we are hungry for all the wrong things. And fasting helps us to develop a taste for the right things. Listen again to the first words from our reading out of 2 Corinthians. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Are there areas in your life where you are not reconciled to God? Are there parts of your life that are out of step with God? That are not pleasing Him? Are there habits? Are there there reactions that you have? Are there areas in your heart that maybe people know about and maybe no one knows about and you are not reconciled to God in those areas. Can you hear the creator of your universe who is also your lover? Can you hear him begging you to work hard? To put real moral sweat, serious spiritual effort into dealing with the dark areas of your life? This is tough work. Lent is hard work. Each year in the Old Testament, one of those feasts, one of those festivals, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, you know what the Israelites had to do? They had to search for every piece of leaven in their house and they had to purge the leaven from their house. Lent is the transformed Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It is the time for you and I to, to declare war on all of the darkness in our life, to get serious about dealing with it. To look into the face of the one who loves us. Who is begging us to come to him. Who is begging us to be reconciled to him. Lent is our feast of the unleavened bread. Where we seek out all of the darkness. And we purge our lives of it. Lent is our focused effort. To identify and smash the idols in our life. But remember... If you're a Christian, you shouldn't be discouraged. It's not like you're taking a knife to a gunfight. I mean, it's a fight. It's it's going to be rough. If you follow the Christ into the wilderness of fasting, you, like he, will experience spiritual warfare. Three years ago, God destroyed me in Lent. It was so brutal, I had a breakdown. I resigned and I had to leave and go away with my family for six weeks to recover. If you follow Christ, it will be into a battle. But you are not taking a knife to a gunfight. Because Christ has poured out his spirit on you. Because you've got the power of the Holy Spirit and you've got his grace and you've got his mercy. I implore you, I appeal to you, give yourself, your whole self, give your daily schedule, give your calendar, give your body to the practices of Lent. These are good and wise practices and they are powerful for restoring your walk with God. They are powerful for transforming your relationship with the Christ. Listen again to the words that God is saying to you. I implore you, be reconciled to me. For your sake. 
I made my son who knew no sin to become sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. And listen again to the word of the Lord to us tonight from Joel. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. The purpose of Lent is to, is to lead us and our children to the Christ. How do we do this? We do it with all the fasting and the praying and the repenting and the kneeling and the scripture reading. These are physical ways that we are choosing a posture of humility. Because the Lord draws near to the humble. Let's pray.